Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you, as always, for being with us for this episode of my podcast. In this episode, we're going to revisit a couple of stories we've covered in the past, starting with the COP26 Climate Summit. I told you before the summit began, that, or actually while the summit was going on, the politicians and other heads of state will be patting each other on the back almost no matter what conclusions and agreements were struck. And finally, after working a little bit overtime, one was struck, one that mandated watering down certain provisions about the elimination of coal. Yet, here's the thing, and you know, there is such a thing, even in climate change, there's such a thing as optics, how things look, how the actions that you take look to the general public, and certainly to climate activists and climate campaigners. And let's talk about a couple of optics briefly here. You had President Joe Biden showing up to the climate talks in a 20-car gas-guzzling motorcade. You had the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, jetting between Glasgow and Scotland rather than taking a train. And he wasn't the only one. A Green Party councillor, a Green Party councillor from Brighton, where I live, flew to Glasgow as well. Terrible, terrible optics. Now, that Green councillor, even though the party backed him, there were many, many calls for him to resign for having flown rather than taking a train. And the bottom line is you can come up with a thousand different reasons why you would fly rather than take a train. And trust me, in England, taking a train is not the same as taking a train in the U.S., unless you're going between New York and Washington. The fact of the matter is that trains are all over the place in England and in Scotland, and you can get from one to the other in about four hours and change. Bottom line, some people didn't want to wait. And this is the center, the nexus, the crux of the problem with any climate change conference, that people come out and say, without saying it, but say, do as I say, not as I do. And you see, for example, some of the smaller countries, particularly countries that are susceptible to climate change in the Caribbean and in other parts of the world, islands, many of them. And you see, they're looking at what the Bidens and the Johnsons of the world are doing. I said, what in the world is this summit actually for? You can come to all kinds of agreements about all kinds of things. But if you can't fundamentally change the way you do things, how do you expect anybody else to do that? How do you expect that? Now, bottom line is, and, and this is the other interesting part, you had the likelihood that COP26 would have the largest carbon footprint since these summits began. But for me, the litmus test was and still is the elimination of fossil fuel subsidies. They're tough to track since many governments aren't transparent about them. One number, according to Human Rights Watch, the G20, the world's major economies, underwrote fossil fuels by 548 billion dollars in 2019. Yet, as we speak, and this, again, this terrible optics. Why can't you stop funding fossil fuel? 
Why can't you start using gov? Why can't you stop using government subsidies to keep these things going? Why can't you simply say we're going to stop drilling for oil as one example? But you see, many nations don't think they can do that. The United States happens to be one of them. They could set no hard and fast timetable for phasing out the subsidies of fossil fuels, which I consider to be a boondoggle. Say what you will about keeping temperature increases at 1.5 degrees Celsius and fighting deforestation. It seems setting a target for eliminating fossil fuel giveaways is beyond the power of the world's governments to implement, much less follow. And this is the nub. You can make all kinds of pledges. They've made pledges at previous climate summits. But there doesn't even seem to be a mechanism for tracking whether the different countries are actually living up to the pledges that they make. Now, you take all these things together and you're out in the street protesting. You're out in the street saying they're not doing enough. And as far as they're concerned, COP26 was an abject failure. And of course, they were, in fact, out in force. And as we've said before, they are not satisfied with self-congratulatory rhetoric, even if the polls worked overtime to develop. And in this case, they did. The problem with COP26 is this. Not enough deliverables to make a major difference. Now, not everybody's going to tell you that. Media will tell you that an agreement's been reached and that it's all well. It's all good. Don't believe it. The activists don't believe it because they know better. One problem the developed world faces, and, and this is one of many, is the gap between people recognizing the need for climate action and the will to make the changes necessary to actually have the needed impact. Recent polling in the U.S., shows that the public supports the battle for climate change, but they are ambivalent about altering their lifestyles to achieve victory over climate change. Now, this is not new. Climate deniers have and still do lifestyle changes as a way of scaring the public. You remember the hamburger scare? When they said, oh, they want to take, these people want to take away your hamburgers. And, and by the way, they painted AOC, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as the leader of the pack in saying, we got to get rid of hamburgers. Even those polls who talked a good game at COP26 did not all walk the walk. Can they really be trusted to keep the commitments they made? Now, to be fair, there will be some, like deforestation, that probably will happen as planned. Yet a number of nations, India, China, South Africa, are pushing back the hardest against ending fossil fuel subsidies and the use of coal. Meanwhile, the nation will continue to experience fire, flooding, extreme weather, and warmer temperatures. And there will be another COP next year. And the band played on. Up next... Are you one of the millions of Americans who quit their jobs in the past few months? We talked about this too, and we'll break it down after this. This is The Intersection.
You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. It wasn't that long ago that I mentioned that the coronavirus and other factors were leading a number of American workers to rethink their work-life balances. Well, now comes numbers that indicate a record number of workers are in fact quitting their jobs. 4.3 million did so in August and 4.4 million did in September. Both are records. There isn't a single reason for this job changing, but the numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics tell a very, very interesting story. All over the country, employers are looking for workers and have been even during the depth of the pandemic. Some have even had to raise wages to hire, train, and retain employees. Remember back when business groups, it wasn't that long ago, you remember when business groups warned of the dire consequences if the minimum wage was raised even a little bit? How quaint that seems now. So what's going on to this remarkable fluidity in the world of work creating, as the Washington Post called it, the most worker-friendly labor market in recent memory? Seems like a number of things. One, the stimulus checks that many workers received during the height of the pandemic gave some the ability to act on safety and childcare concerns and leave jobs that they really didn't like all that much in the first place. One difference the stimulus may have made is workers' ability to delay looking for a new job if they quit the one they have. And let's face it, some workers had less than ideal working conditions and even less empathetic bosses. But undergirding this is safety. The biggest number of people quitting are clustered in leisure and hospitality, health services, and education. I think mask and vaccine mandates may have also played a role. There are people who have been told what to do all their working lives and being told they have to wear a mask or get vaccinated may have been too much for them, even if their own safety is involved. Make no mistake, these mass resignations are having an impact on the nation's ability to recover from the coronavirus. This worker shortage has manifested itself in a number of unintended ways. Some employers are offering bonuses to new employees, Others are foregoing background checks, which is very interesting. You know, because if they're foregoing them, why do you need them in the first place? Still others have dramatically increased opportunities for on-the-job training. If there was ever a time for workers to take advantage of the current climate, it's now. I've been saying for some years that anecdotally younger people aren't nearly as anchored to their jobs as my generation was. That gold watch after 25 years seems as antiquated as the transistor radio. While these circumstances may not last forever, looking for job opportunities that allow more working from home, flexible hours, and the like may lead workers to a more productive job experience and work-life balance. Maybe there are job fairs nearby. I would advise workers, if you're not happy with what you're doing, check out a job fair. You never know. There may be employers as eager to find you as you are to find them. No better time than now to take that chance. Up next, 
Did the interstate highway boom of the 50s and 60s intentionally destroy neighborhoods containing people of color? Makes you think, doesn't it? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Once upon a time, when I was a teenager, a group I belonged to attended an event in Philadelphia. We stayed in a motel in South Jersey. During the time we were there, we took at least a half dozen bus trips into Philly. The motel was on a highway that led directly to one of the city's major bridges. The first time we went, and I thought my eyes were deceiving me, but I noticed to my amazement that there were houses and small apartments on the median between the lanes headed in opposite directions. When I looked closer, I realized the steps from these houses led directly onto the highway. I'd never seen anything like that before. I wondered how people with children managed to navigate that kind of treacherous traffic. At first, I thought the places must be abandoned. That is, until I saw a child coming out of one of them. Now, time has passed, and I'm all but certain those houses are long gone. But how highway developers landlocked them stayed with me all these years. Of course, many, if not most of the people in that situation were black or other people of color. I recount this story in light of an LA Times article, it's a recent article, that was entitled, The Racist History of America's Interstate Highway Boom. The piece chronicles the destruction of black neighborhoods from Nashville to Los Angeles to Birmingham to Tulsa in the name of building the interstate highway system that was a lasting legacy of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. The highway developers worked in concert with urban renewal agencies to make black people think their removal from these neighborhoods was a good thing. Now, in the interest of fairness, this did not only happen in black communities. In New York City, the building of the Cross Bronx Expressway cut a huge swath through a then white neighborhood in the central part of the Bronx. And by the way, that was a neighborhood that at the time the Cross Bronx was built was thriving. People were doing quite well in that neighborhood. And it actually was more than one neighborhood, if you want to be honest about it. Some people say that the Bronx never fully recovered from the building of the Cross Bronx Expressway. And of course, this was the vision of a guy named Robert Moses, who essentially decided that New York City's neighborhoods, inner city neighborhoods, weren't worth existing in their current form. So his idea was just to build through them, around them, over them, whatever he had to do. Now, there's also the case of Westway. Same city, same effort, different result. Opponents of that plan banded together and stopped it. If successful, it would have constructed an elevated highway through the middle of New York City's Greenwich Village, one of its quirkiest and best-known neighborhoods. All these projects, no matter who they affected, were designed to make it easier for white suburbanites to access the inner city. Because of discriminatory lending practices, those suburbs are still, all these years later, largely white. Years after the interstate system was completed. 
again, no matter the city. The damage done by the interstate highway system to black and other neighborhoods of color will have to stand as a lesson learned since there's been a backlash to highway building in many cities across the country. Also, as black political power has grown through the years, the fight back against such destructive highway construction has been much, much more successful. And I gotta be honest, that money actually would be better spent on mass transit. Don't think so? Well, I mean, we can argue, we can quibble, but to me, that's the bottom line. We've got a couple of other quick asides and we'll get to them shortly. This is The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. The Kyle Rittenhouse trial isn't over yet, so I don't want to sound like I'm prejudging its outcome. Yet there appears to be a better than average chance this kid could be acquitted. Of course, for those of you who've forgotten who Kyle Rittenhouse is, he's a guy who crossed state lines with an AR-15, went to a demonstration, shot and killed two people, and injured a third. Some blame the prosecution for overcharging him. The right wing says Rittenhouse was defending himself. Still others say the judge has been over backwards in favor of Rittenhouse's defense. No matter which of these is true, if a 17-year-old white kid crosses a state line and ends up killing two and injuring a third and he walks, there's something seriously wrong with our justice system. Remember, he cannot be tried twice if he's acquitted. The whole defense system thrown up around this kid gives lie to the notion that the U.S. is somehow better than many of the nations we criticize. One has to ask, how does a mother drive her underage son, because remember he was underage at the time, he was 17, how does she drive him to the border between states armed with an AR-15? And by the way, she has not been charged with any crime. Whether you agree with protests after the death of George Floyd or not, Kyle Rittenhouse had no business wading into a protest and then shooting and killing people. I really hope justice is done. Another situation worth watching is the heightened tensions between Belarus and Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia. Long story short, refugees and migrants from the Middle East are allegedly being helped by the government of Belarus, an ally of Russia, to cross into the three countries, all members of the EU. As happens too often, the people trying to make this journey end up being human fodder in a political battle. The leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, is upset about EU sanctions after Belarus forced down a civilian airliner to arrest a dissident. So what we have here is an autocrat in Poland versus an autocrat in Belarus. The casualties are from neither country and their sin appears to be wanting to make it to an EU country. Their treatment is a disgrace. There are reports that one 14-year-old froze to death along the border. I believe that may, I forget whether it was Poland, 
Latvia or Lithuania and Belarus. But wherever it was, there is no excuse for this. None. Now, you have to understand that the EU has been trying to deter migrants from their borders for a good while now. We should not forget that many of these migrants and refugees come from countries the West has fought wars in for whatever sets of reasons. Is it any wonder these chickens are coming home to roost? Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.